Hello, my friend, and welcome or welcome back to the Live Label Free Podcast. First of all, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart to everyone who bought a copy of Rainbow Girl. Putting out such a vulnerable story into the world is definitely a leap of faith, but the messages I've already received and the glowing reviews people have already left about the book truly illustrate how vulnerability is the greatest strength. There's a lot of content on eating disorder recovery out there, but simply not enough on the prevalent link between autism and eating disorders. I also feel like eating disorder treatment being harmful is not talked about enough, which is why I believe it's so important that Rainbow Girl reaches a lot of people. Not only people suffering from eating disorders, but also parents and caregivers. Just listen to what Carol has to say about Rainbow Girl. I'm a mom supporting my beautiful autistic daughter with her journey with an eating disorder. This book has helped me to understand my daughter's journey more and is a great way to support her. I will be recommending this book to any professional who works with individuals who have eating disorders. I feel so honored. If you read or have read Rainbow Girl and love it, please, please, please write a review on Amazon or Goodreads. Making a change in this world and bringing more awareness to the overlap between neurodiversity and eating disorders is a big task to say the least and requires a team effort so by simply leaving a review you're giving other people a reason to read the book which allows us to break the stigmas together. That being said if you have not yet grabbed a copy of Rainbow Girl head over to livelabelfree.com forward slash Rainbow Girl where you can buy the ebook or the paperback or both. A few people have already asked me if the ebook is Kindle friendly, and my answer is a big fat yes. When you order from my website, you'll get a PDF and an EPUB file delivered straight to your inbox so you can dive in right away in whichever file format you prefer. Or if you do go for the paperback version, Rainbow Girl is printed worldwide, so wherever you are, you can order from your country's Amazon, and uh, I just cannot wait for you to read my journey to living life in full color, if you have not already, of course. Now with all of that enthusiasm out of the way, it's time to dive into even more enthusiasm, because today, I'm going to be answering a question I have gotten so many times, and that is, how do I eat? And that's a totally valid question. I talk about food freedom all the time and extreme hunger and honoring your body's needs, but at the same time, I talk about how autistic people may struggle with recognizing their body's cues and how many behaviors that may seem restrictive from an eating disorder lens are actually manifestations of autistic traits. So how does honoring hunger fit together with being autistic? Keep on listening to find out. Welcome to Live Label Free, the podcast, where you'll learn to let go of limiting labels and embrace your unique brain. As my mom says so beautifully in her song, Fear is a heavy load to carry. 
which is why on this podcast, you'll learn the scientific links between neurodiversity and eating disorders, giving you a deeper understanding of how you can face your fears and become truly free. Together, you and me, we will keep putting one foot in front of the other. I've been thinking for a long time about how I would start off this episode, and the truth is that I don't really know where to start. However, when I was in a similar position while writing my book, there was this one mantra by Ernest Hemingway that always motivated me to take the first step, and that is, all you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the true sentence that you know. So in this case, I'm obviously going to say the true sentence, And the first words that come to mind are that I didn't know how to eat without a meal plan for a very long time. As I write in Rainbow Girl, my eating habits since my youngest years were governed by structure and by routine. For 10 years straight, I ate the same thing for breakfast, for lunch, and for dinner. And when I developed my eating disorder at the age of 11, my whole goal was to eat as quote-unquote healthy as possible. Because of my naturally petite frame and high metabolism though, Just a few pounds of weight loss was enough to land me in the hospital. I was terrified of what was to come, but I remember when I received a meal plan with all these exchanges, it was like the biggest sense of relief washed over me. I finally had a reason to eat a substantial amount of food again because the plan basically gave me permission to do so, which actually brings me to this whole idea of few foods not really resonating with me. I did have few foods, but not in the way they're traditionally labeled in the eating disorder recovery community. Whereas most people recovering from anorexia fear high-calorie, nutrient-dense food, I honestly didn't really have a problem eating these foods as long as they followed my plan. But to ensure that they did follow my plan, they had to be precisely weighed and measured because these were obviously also the foods for which small miscalculations or variations in portion size could lead to drastically different exchanges, which of course meant lack of knowledge and therefore lack of trust, and then ultimately would lead me to have anxiety and make it seem as if said high-calorie food was a quote-unquote few food. I distinctly remember one discussion with my dietitian, and when she asked me about my fear foods, I told her one of my fear foods was green peas. And she was like, why? Green peas can't be a fear food. They're vegetables. But as anyone with an eating disorder knows, or anyone with the history of an eating disorder knows, green peas are much more starchy than, say, for example, broccoli or cauliflower. So in my mind, they should have been counted as a starch rather than a vegetable exchange. Now, I tried to explain this to my dietitian, but all she said was that I was making it up and that my eating disorder was talking, and I just remember how invalidated that made me feel. It wasn't that I wanted to eat less or not eat green peas. I mean, I love green peas. It was just that the exchange did not make sense to me, and therefore it brought up anxiety around counting them as a vegetable. Anyways, back to the main topic, meal plans, not knowing how to eat. Even though there were some examples of foods counting as certain exchanges that I felt I had to be extra cautious around, like I just mentioned, my meal plan was my lifeboat for well over seven years. 
it gave me a reason to eat, which, now that I think about it, makes total sense from an autistic perspective. I never do anything without reason, and I know that most autistic people listening to this will resonate with that. We approach everything in such a logical manner. We do our research, we weigh our options, no pun intended, and then we draw a conclusion based on the results. Whereas this approach has contributed to many scientific breakthroughs from our autistic friends such as Albert Einstein, Isaac Newton, and Charles Darwin, this thinking style can also be the Achilles heel of autistic people who go on to develop eating disorders. In my case, this need for things needing to make sense and only taking action when I could somehow justify my action through logical reasoning made eating without some kind of structure or routine near impossible. On top of that, and I've talked about this before, neurodivergent people tend to lack interoceptive awareness. Interoception is the sense through which you monitor the inner state of your body, meaning it's responsible for telling you whether you're hungry or thirsty, too hot or too cold, whether you're tired or energetic, you get the idea. So when Instagram influencers or healthcare professionals tell you to rate your hunger on a scale from 1 to 10 or listen to your body and honor your hunger, what they're actually saying is to interpret your interoceptive awareness. But how can you eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full if you're unable to recognize these cues? That's right. The puzzle becomes a bit more complex than the peace and ease that these people promote when they tell you to eat intuitively. That being said, autistic people need a different approach. Even before I discovered I'm autistic, I felt this in my flesh and bones. Treatment was not working. The advice to eat intuitively did not align. Being spontaneous and allowing food to be unpredictable gave me more anxiety than the freedom I was promised. If you're in the same boat, you are not alone, you're not crazy, and you are not the anomaly who now just has to manage an eating disorder for the rest of your life. In fact, the fact that you know the traditional treatment approach is not working for you already puts you at an advantage and puts you leaps and bounds further than most people who are still stuck trying to fit a mold they were never meant to fit. So what is the autistic approach? How can you eat intuitively? How do I do this? Well, first of all, I don't like the whole intuitive terminology with regards to eating. To elaborate, let's read the definition of the word intuition. As defined by the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the noun intuition is defined as the power or faculty of attaining to direct knowledge or cognition without evident rational thought and influence. Now, as I mentioned earlier, autistic people are incredibly logical. We are always using evident rational thought and influence, which makes us so detail-oriented and creative. But as you can conclude from the definition of intuition, we simply cannot be intuitive if our brains work in a completely different fashion. And actually, it's not just our brains that have an impact on this inability to understand and interpret inner cues. The state of your nervous system also plays a huge role. The term nervous system is an umbrella term for several subsystems. It can be broken down into the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system. 
The central nervous system consists of the brain and spinal cord and is responsible for interpreting incoming information, formulating appropriate reactions, and sending responses to the appropriate systems within the body. The peripheral nervous system, on the other hand, is made up of nerves that branch off from the spinal cord and extend to all parts of the body. The peripheral nervous system can be further divided into two subsystems, one controlling external responses and one controlling internal responses. Your somatic nervous system is the division of the peripheral nervous system that governs the external activities of the body. Your autonomic nervous system is the division of the peripheral nervous system that governs the internal activities of the body. So, as you may have guessed, this is the system we will be paying the most attention to. When you think of the autonomic nervous system, some thoughts about fight or flight mode and rest and digest mode may come up. If so, you're on the right track. Historically, the autonomic nervous system has been divided into two systems that oppose each other, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. The sympathetic nervous system is associated with fight-or-flight behaviors, and the parasympathetic nervous system is associated with growth, healing, and restoration. Although this paired antagonistic model of the autonomic nervous system is highly prevalent in most textbooks and forms of health education, it fails to explain several aspects of human biology. A much richer and all-encompassing explanation lies in the polyvagal theory, a model of the autonomic nervous system created by the psychiatrist and neuroscientist Stephen Porges. The term polyvagal combines poly, meaning many, and vagal, which refers to the nerve called the vagus. Your vagus nerve is the longest nerve in your body and therefore directly influences many important systems including your breathing, heart rate, and digestion. It can be divided into a left and right branch that originate in two different parts of the brain. The polyvagal theory views the autonomic nervous system differently from the quote-unquote old model by breaking it down into not two, but three unique branches. The sympathetic nervous system, SNS, the dorsal vagal complex, DVC, and the ventral vagal complex, VVC. I know these terms sound crazy scientific, but stay with me here. I promise I'll explain all of it simply. The old model divides the entire autonomic nervous system into the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system, which is known to be influenced by the vagus nerve. The polyvagal theory takes our understanding of the parasympathetic nervous system a step further by dividing it into the DVC and VVC, two complexes that are associated with two different branches of the vagus nerve. The dorsal vagal complex, DVC, is the phylogenetically oldest circuit of your autonomic nervous system. It's shared with all vertebrates, including reptiles. So, similar to how our brainstem, the oldest part of our brain, is referred to as the reptilian brain, the branch of the vagus associated with the DVC is often referred to as the reptilian vagus. One of the earliest survival strategies of vertebrates is death feigning, which can be observed as behavioral shutdown as well as other symptoms of immobilization in humans. Think feeling numb, blanking out, dissociating. For this reason, the DVC is also known as the shutdown circuit or the immobilization system. 
The inhibition of movement slows heart rate, decreases metabolism, and conserves oxygen, which are adaptive responses for reptiles who can survive without oxygen for long periods of time. However, as you probably know, us humans need oxygen 24-7. The body is highly adaptive, so throughout evolution, it developed another threat response that became our first line of defense, the sympathetic nervous system. In contrast to the DVC that causes immobilization, the sympathetic nervous system supports mobilization behaviors and can therefore be referred to as the mobilization system. The SNS regulates your body's fight-or-flight response by preparing the body for imminent danger. When your sympathetic nervous system is activated, your heart rate increases to deliver more blood to areas of your body that need more oxygen. The last circuit we will be discussing is the phylogenetically newest circuit, the ventral vagal complex, or VVC. It is part of the parasympathetic nervous system along with the dorsal vagal complex but is associated with a different branch of the vagus. In fact, the ventral branch of the vagus projects to structures including the head, face, and throat making it a key player in your ability to speak, eat, and breathe. Because of its influence in social communication, the VVC is also known as the social engagement system. You now may be wondering, what does all of this have to do with intuitive eating? Well, autistic people are often either in their sympathetic nervous system or dorsal vagal complex, and this may actually be part of the reason why autistic people have trouble in social situations. But that's a whole other topic. I often talk about how being autistic can feel like you're living in a constant state of fight-or-flight mode, as when you're living in a world that wasn't built for you, you are quite literally surviving in threatening circumstances all the time. Obviously, the body cannot be in fight-or-flight mode forever, however, as being in this state demands incredible amounts of energy. So if you, as an autistic person, don't get time to recharge, don't get enough rest, or really don't get enough of anything else you know you need to self-soothe and come back to a state of, okay, I can take on the world, your body will revert to its most primitive autonomic circuit and your dorsal vagal complex will be activated. What does this tell us about autistic shutdowns and meltdowns then? Well, those are both examples of how the body attempts to preserve itself. They're not problematic behaviors like so many ableist people say, they're adaptive survival mechanisms. Now, how this applies to intuitive eating, or rather the lacking ability to be intuitive with food is that fight-or-flight mode and dorsal vagal shutdown both cause homeostatic processes to be put on the back burner. Any systems that support growth, healing, and restoration, including the ingestion of food, are not priorities when your body needs to escape danger. After all, evolution would have made a grave mistake if it prompted you to casually sit down and mindfully eat a sandwich if you needed to run away from a tiger. All that being said, I believe a much more appropriate term to use when it comes to eating as an autistic person instead of the term intuitive eating is the term logical eating. When I'm stressed, my hunger cues go way out of whack, not to mention my entire digestive system. If I followed the whole 
Oh, I'm going to rate my hunger on a scale from 1 to 10, and I'm going to eat until I'm comfortably full. All the time, I would probably not even be alive right now. And that's obviously from the perspective of not feeling hungry, but what about when you also never feel full? That's also a feeling I know all too well. My body seems to often flip-flop between these two states. Some days or weeks, I'll not have physical hunger, and I follow my mental hunger, or thinking about wanting to eat, to guide my eating decisions. But then other weeks, it'll be like my stomach did a 180-degree flip, and it can feel like the kitchen is just pulling me constantly to come eat everything but the kitchen sink. Now, all of this has to do with the body's attempt to keep itself in homeostasis, because the reality is that the body is not static, and sometimes we do just need more food. But that's of course also where food and eating gets another layer of complexity for autistic people recovering from eating disorders, because we want food to be predictable. We want to be able to eat the same amounts every day. We don't want our body's needs to change because then that means that we have to change. But the reality of life is that change is the only constant. You cannot control your body's needs, meaning that trying to do so will only result in having an eating disorder for the rest of your life. You're listening to this though because you do want food freedom. You do want to eat in a way that's not governed by rules while still following the routines your autistic self thrives on. And it's bringing these two concepts together that results in my approach to eating. It's all about having freedom routines. What do I mean by this? Personally, I have a daily food structure. I have a certain amount of meals and snacks that are always going to be part of my daily routine and I love this routine. It's predictable, I know what I can expect, and it provides me with a structure that allows me to feel safe. However, I don't want to be governed by this routine. That's exactly what an eating disorder did to me long enough. If I want to go out to lunch or have an unplanned ice cream, I want there to be space and time for that. Insert the term freedom routine. I have my daily eating structure and I have flexibility within that. An example of this may be that I had my usual breakfast, snack, lunch, snack, and oh, I'm on a walk and it's hot and you know what? I'm suddenly really craving an ice cream cone. During my disordered eating days, I would have said, oh no, I cannot have an ice cream cone at like 4pm. That would mess up the whole plan. But if at that moment I really wanted an ice cream cone, my plan would restrict me and therefore prevent me from living a life that's aligned with my core value of freedom. So maybe in my recovery days, I would have allowed myself the ice cream cone, but to make sure the day would be quote-unquote balanced, I would delete my night snack. But also during my recovery days, my night snack was holy. No joke. I spent the whole day looking forward to my nighttime feast. So in anticipation of this, I'd likely still not have the ice cream cone to quote-unquote, preserve my night snack. Looking back now, though, I clearly see my entire mindset was rooted in scarcity. I was so afraid of feeling a different level of fullness, so afraid of the guilt or anxiety that would come from changing the plan that I kept everything the same all the time. But the result of this was not food freedom. It was being a slave. So I knew that if I wanted freedom, even if that was my own unique version of it, I had to stop enslaving myself to the rules. 
And I did this through having my rules, so the eating structure I mentioned previously, and making space for flexibility in between those rules. In the case of the ice cream cone, how I would have challenged this in the past is I would have picked out a certain day or certain days of the week that I would have that quote-unquote extra ice cream cone at 4pm or whatever, and I would not change anything else about my day. Yes, this of course brought up fear and anxiety, and it will for you too if you resonate with my experience, but it goes to show that you can challenge yourself and the eating disorder fears by using your autistic trait of desiring predictability to plan exactly when and how you're going to do this. Now, as someone who is fully recovered from an eating disorder, I still use this approach. Everything in my life needs to be predictable for me to feel safe. So it would not only be unrealistic if this didn't also apply to food, but it would just be plain weird. That would not make sense. I have my set meals and my set snacks, and if I want more or less, there's margins for that. Because again, change is the only constant. You can fight it and be at lifelong war with yourself, or you can accept it and make peace with yourself. Don't get me wrong, change is still super hard for me. But I've accepted that some kinds of change are out of my control. And you can't control what you can't control. A hard truth, but the truth nonetheless. Now, I know this episode is getting quite long because, of course, this is a really deep topic that I honestly could write an entire book about. And hint, hint, I may have already started writing it, but shh, don't tell anyone. So I do want to wrap up soon. But before I do, I really do need to touch on the food scale. Especially if you listen to my recent podcast episode on why I do not believe in smashing the food scale, you're probably dying to know how the food scale fits into my life. Well, as I said in that episode, I still own a food scale. For many years, I tried on and off to not use it, but every time I put it away and out of sight, I just felt really lost. Every time I tried to go make food, I would go into that dorsal vagal shutdown state and I just wouldn't know what or how much to eat. Now, if a traditional eating disorder professional who's completely shut themselves off to being neurodivergent affirming heard me say this, they'd probably say this was an excuse of my eating disorder or whatever. But I know my truth, and that is that numbers have always given me a sense of safety. Knowing what time something starts, when it's going to end, doing certain tasks at certain times, constantly counting things in my head. This has been my life since I remember having a conscious thought, meaning this is a characteristic that inherently makes me me, so I'm not going to fight it. In fact, I embrace it. I was talking about the food scale a few weeks ago with one of my clients actually, and she so eloquently explained how a food scale can fit into the life of an autistic person. We both share a love of smoothies, and we were totally both connecting over how we've both perfected our smoothie recipe, meaning we have all the ingredient ratios perfect. She said that this perfect smoothie brings her so much joy, and that's what living a life of freedom is all about. However, if she didn't use her food scale to get the perfect ratio, she may not get the ratios right, and therefore, her smoothie wouldn't be as good. So why would she force herself into that position if she doesn't need to? Well, that's why she won't. She doesn't need to force herself into that position. She knows her truth and owns it, just like I know mine and own it. And deep down, you know yours. Now go own it. 
and few. <laughs> Definitely a lot longer of an episode than I'm used to, but I really, really, really hope me sharing about how I approach eating as an autistic person gave you insight and encouragement and also permission that you don't have to strive for this ideal of intuitive eating. It's okay to approach eating like you do everything else, which is logically, we all have to eat every day for the rest of our lives, so you might as well make the experience as peaceful as you can. If you want more guidance on how to create your own logical eating structure, schedule a consultation call for one-on-one coaching by visiting the link livelabelfree.com forward slash schedule. And if you mention that you scheduled this call after listening to this specific episode, I'll even send you a free copy of my cookbook, Nourishing Neurodiversity, which contains some perfect smoothie recipes, if I do say so myself. And lastly, do grab yourself a copy of Rainbow Girl if you haven't already. It's given me so much joy to hear what an impact it's been making on so many people. So I would love to hear what you think when you read it. I hope to hear from you soon, my friend, and otherwise, I'll chat with you in the next episode. Bye-bye for now. Just one foot in front of the other, and you'll see around the corner soon. This podcast has been recorded by your host, Liv. This podcast has been edited by my small but mighty Live Label Free team and the beautiful song One Foot in Front of the Other that you are now listening to was written and recorded by my beautiful mom, Louise Alexandra. I am so grateful for my team and everyone who supports Live Label Free. Together, we are always stronger.